The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Tell everybody looks cool this evening, right? Just think another two months, we're going to be in our own place. Or So yesterday we had a meeting with a planning committee, for lack of a better term. We had about, I don't know, what, 10 or 11 people there from different aspects of uh, administration, the church, all uh, working out the details of how we're, going to, uh, how we're going to construct the interior of this new place. Now, you all should be pleased to know that we didn't hit anybody. Nobody broke out in a fist fight like you have in a lot of you know, church meetings of this type. In fact, it went pretty rapidly. I, I thought, well, if we're all in fellowship and we're in harmony, then we'll be out of there within a couple of hours. If not, well, it could go till midnight. Well, we were out at, by two hours, we were just cleaning up the minor details. So that says something about us. Either that or they're just, the options are so limited where there's not much we can actually fight about. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we're indeed grateful for everything that you have done for us, for the life that you have given us, for the eternal life that you have so graciously provided for us. We thank you for our salvation that is based not on who we are or what we have done, but on who Jesus Christ is and what he accomplished on the cross. Father, we thank you that with our salvation you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. That nothing is as more dear to us as the sufficiency of your grace, the sufficiency of your word, and that out of your love you have given us everything that we need. Now, Father, as we continue our study, as we learn more about you, we pray that you would enable us to understand the Scriptures, to come to a, a more accurate understanding of who you are and how you uh, relate to us, that we may indeed think accurate thoughts about you and glorify you in everything that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study on the basics of Christianity, and we've entitled the series Foundation for Truth. Now, there's a lot of different nuances to that title, Foundation for Truth. One I pointed out is when we began is the very concept of truth itself to a Jewish mind was the idea of foundation. Truth is that which is a, a, an unshakable foundation on which we can build our lives, on which we can construct our thinking about God, about his world, and everything within his world. Now tonight, one of the things we're going to see as we continue our study of what the Bible teaches about the Trinity of God is that 
the implications of the doctrine of the Trinity are such that that they give us a foundation for understanding many different elements of life, many elements of society, many different elements related to marriage, related to family, related to government, all grounded upon an understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, since this is a fairly basic series, there's a lot of applications I'm not going to develop or go into. I'm just going to give a hint of why this is such a significant doctrine. Now, when we start off with this, I started off last time, one of the things that I put on the overhead was a statement from our doctrinal statement, from the belief statement of this congregation, that we believe that God exists one in person, our one in essence, and three in person. He has one essence that is common to all three members of the Trinity. And yet he exists as three distinct persons. Now, this is a foundational understanding of the Word of God. It is basic Christian orthodoxy and is a, an understanding of the Godhead that's been true for Christianity since the 5th century A.D. I'm not saying that it wasn't true before, but that the articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity came about at a church council that was known as the Council of Nicaea, that met in 425 A.D. as a result of an empire-wide division over an understanding of who Jesus Christ was, who he was before the Incarnation. And so it was at that council where there were uh, approximately 300 representatives from the different churches throughout the Roman Empire who came together to hammer out a clear, definitive statement that would explain what the Bible taught about the person of Jesus Christ and his relationship to God the Father. Now, this is foundational for understanding Christianity. But, unfortunately, many people have a misunderstanding of of these things. They think that somehow the church voted on this doctrine and that put it in place and that when we study something like the Trinity or the hypostatic union or one of these other things, that this is sort of an abstract theological position that was developed, and then we just come together, we study it, you studied it in Sunday school class, or you read about it, you articulate it as you reiterate some sort of creedal statement in some churches, and so this is the doctrine of the Trinity, and this is what we believe as Christians, even so, amen. And that's about as far as you go with it. And people get the impression that the doctrine comes from sort of a church tradition or dogmatic statement rather than from the Word of God. And so last time I started off by pointing out that this doctrine doesn't derive from some sort of abstract uh, theology that is just developed independently of Scripture. The doctrine of the Trinity is, in fact, an explanation of what is taught in the Bible. It is a summation of what is taught in the Bible. The word Trinity itself is not a biblical word. It's not found anywhere in the Bible. You can look as much as you want to in Genesis all the way to Revelation. You'll never find it. It was a word that was coined by one of the early church fathers in the the 3rd century by the name of Tertullian. And Tertullian uh, was a theologian in North Africa, And he came up with this word or coined this word Trinitas, a Latin word, in order to try to explain what the Bible uh, taught. So last time we began and just just have a little review of where we what we covered last time. First of all, I pointed out that the Bible clearly teaches that the creator God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of Israel, all the way back to Genesis chapter one, is a singularity. By that I mean the Bible affirms that God is one. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods besides me, emphasizes the singularity of the God of the Old Testament. And we see this in passages such as Deuteronomy 6.4, which is a very famous passage, well-known passage to Jews. It's called the Shema because the first word in the Hebrew is the Cal imperative of, of Shema, meaning to listen, to hear. And it reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. 
And I pointed out that uh, too often there's a misunderstanding of the concept of one here as if it is a mathematical concept of one. But this is a concept of one. The Hebrew word echad, which is translated one, has a couple of different meanings. And one of them has to do with being uh, unique or alone. The Lord alone is our God. And I think that is the best translation. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord alone is our God. The word echad can also include a multiplicity within it. It's not a one that is single and solitary. It is a one that contains within it a multiplicity. Just as you can talk about a bunch of grapes, you talk about one, but it has many different elements. You can also talk, as the Scriptures do in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, that uh, uh, for this reason... They shall leave their parents, and the two shall become one flesh. You have two individuals, and they become one in marriage. And it's the same word there uh, for one that you have in Deuteronomy 6.4. Now, that has particular uh, implications for where we're going to go later this evening as we study the implications of the Trinity, and that's really where I want to focus tonight, is the implications of the Trinity, because too often I find that people think of the Trinity as just something nice to know about God, but we don't really probe the depths of this concept of the Trinity to give us an understanding of many other areas of existence, because God, as a triune God, created the heavens and the earth. So we should see something in the creation that reflects his triunity. So the first point in terms of review is we saw that the Bible clearly teaches that the Creator God is a singularity. There is one God. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a book that is monotheistic. But we have to recognize under point number two that the Bible also clearly teaches that there is a multiplicity of divine Persons. There's a multiplicity of divine persons. And we saw that in the Old Testament they use the word Elohim. The I am at the end of that word is a plural ending in Hebrew. Just as we add S at the end of a word to make it a plural word in English, in Hebrew you add I am. And so Elohim is a plural. In some places it is translated gods when it refers to the idols. In other places, Elohim also is a reference to angels. And so it has that plural idea. But when it refers to God, it, is, it refers to his entire being. And so the fact that it ends with an I-M indicates a plurality. When you look at other passages, such as Genesis 1:26. You see God, God, Elohim, saying, let us make man in our image. And you have the plural, let us. Also, you have uh, passages such as Isaiah 6, verse 8, where God refers to himself as us. And this plural pronoun indicates a plurality of persons in the Godhead. We see further indications of the Trinity or this multiplicity of divine beings in the Old Testament. We looked at the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, and that there are passages such as Zechariah 3 where the angel of Yahweh speaks to Yahweh, indicating two persons, whereas in other passages uh, we see, such as Judges 6, where the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, the Gideon is addressing the angel of the Lord as the Lord and indeed builds an altar and offers a sacrifice to the angel of the Lord. And he is not rebuked by the angel of the Lord as the angel in Revelation 19 rebukes John for wanting to worship him. The angel of the Lord accepts that worship, indicating that he is fully divine and worthy of worship. And then you have passages such as Isaiah 48:15 and 16. God is speaking and says, uh, I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called him. I have brought him, and he, will, and he will make his ways successful. Come near to me. Listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. So you have one individual who is speaking here who is a divine person. From the time it took place, I was there. That indicates uh, um, 
omnipresence or, and also uh, eternality. And now the Lord God, another person, has sent me, me being that the, the speaker who is the divine person, and his spirit. So there's a clear indication of three persons in Isaiah 48, 16. Furthermore, we saw that in other Old Testament passages, this is a fourth point of review, we saw that there's an indication that the Messiah would be not only human because he has born into humanity, but that he would be mighty God. We saw this in Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. This indicates humanity. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Now think about who's writing this. Isaiah is writing this, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. And Isaiah is a monotheist. He is not a polytheist. He doesn't believe in many gods. And yet Isaiah is writing this passage about the, this prophecy about the coming Messiah and says he is a child who's given to us and he will be mighty God. So you see, there has to be an understanding here of a multiplicity of persons in the Godhead. And in fact, we know from some early Jewish writings that they did understand this. They, they didn't have a, I'm not saying they had an understanding of the Trinity. I'm not understanding they had a clear perception of this. But they did recognize the implications of multiplicity here. And this just got wiped out historically after Christianity came along and Christians claimed that Jesus was the second person in the Godhead. So at that point, uh, Pharisaism calcified into modern Judaism, and there was a rejection of a multiplicity in the Godhead. Well, so what we've seen in these first four points is that the Old Testament taught two things. Number one, that God was one. And on the other hand, that there were a multiplicity of persons in the Godhead. Well, how do you put that together? Well, through the Old Testament, they never tried to resolve the, this tension that was just present in the text. So when Jesus comes along and claims to be God in the New Testament, and the New Testament gives us revelation about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it is not new in the sense of contradictory. It is a further development built on what has already been revealed in the Old Testament. And we see the same issue in the New Testament. The New Testament talks about God as one, and it talks about three persons in the Godhead. But it never tries to resolve that in terms of a, for lack of a better term, a categorical doctrine such as we have now under the term Trinity. And this is how the early church handled it. The early church, in many ways, was very uh, unsophisticated or naive in their theology. They went along for many decades talking about Jesus as God, worshiping Jesus as God, talking about the Holy Spirit as divine, and talking about the Father as divine without understanding that this could be taken as a someone holding to three different gods, a position known as tritheism three gods. And so they never tried to clarify that. But by the end of the second century and on into the third century, the Greek philosophers and other skeptics who rejected the claims of Christianity started pointing this out as an apparent contradiction in Christian theology. They said, what do you mean? If Jesus is God and and the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God, you've got three gods. And so the Christians kind of sat back and scratched their head and said, well, wait a minute, how do we explain this? We believe there's only one God, but we believe there's a Father and there's the Son, there's the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we explain this? And it was in that context that Tertullian coined the term Trinitas, and theologians began to deal with what the Scripture says, and that's why when we define the Trinity as one in essence and three in person. This is a definition that goes back to about the 3rd century A.D., and it is a clarification of what the Bible teaches. It is not an external dogma that just kind of bounced out of thin air. And every now and then you run into to folks that get some, some unusual notions, let's say, simply because they read some of the popular literature or some of the literature of our day that is an assault against Christianity. 
And because we don't teach church history and because we don't inform Christians how these things developed and how they came to be understood, people get sort of blindsided. They're witnessing to somebody or they read some book and the next thing you know, something is being said that they don't know the answer to. And if you're young in the faith or you don't know any better or you're a college student and you're trying to figure out just what you believe, it starts planting those seeds of doubt in your mind. And I remember... Back in the late 80s, when Shirley MacLaine wrote her, her book, Out on a Limb, which some called Out on a Broken Limb. But nevertheless, in her book, Out on a Limb, Shirley MacLaine claim, made the claim that this whole doctrine of the Trinity was just invented at the Council of Nicaea, and it came out of Greek philosophy. And this is a common claim among people who have been influenced by New Age teaching. You even see it resurrect itself in the Da Vinci Code, that these ideas came out of Greek philosophy, and nothing could be further from the truth. There is nothing in any religious system or philosophical system that even even imitates the unique Christian doctrine of the Trinity. So we come to the New Testament, and we see that there's the, there are these same emphases. And one of the key passages I pointed out last time is Matthew 28, 18, and 19. And in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And here's where you have that uh, Trinitarian statement, where you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit stated as equals, and all under the category of one name. It's not in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as if there were three, three distinct gods, but in the one name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Another passage in the New Testament that reiterates this triune statement is 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity are mentioned there as equals. So we see from this that the, uh, old, that the New Testament also recognizes that there is one God and one in, in uh, essence and three in persons. Now, when we come to the study of the Gospels and Jesus' claims, one of the things that should strike us is that Every writer in the New Testament, being Jewish, was a monotheist. I pointed this out last time. And as monotheists, they believed in only one God. Nevertheless, they also made claims of deity for both Jesus and for the Holy Spirit. For example, Matthew 9:17, Jesus said, There is only one who is true, one who is good. That indicates that the, he understood that there was only one God. The Jews were also monotheistic. They sought to kill him because he made himself out to be God, according to John 5.18. Paul and Barnabas, when they went to Lystra, they were the crowds uh, fell down to worship them and to bring offerings to him, identifying them as Zeus and uh, Hermes. And Paul and Barnabas ripped their clothes because they thought that that they were being viewed as gods, and, and they were monotheists. So all along we see this emphasis on monotheism. Nevertheless, Jesus allowed himself to be worshipped as God. Now, if he's a monotheist, why would he allow himself to be worshipped as God unless he was God? So I pointed out several things as we ended last time. I want to go back and look at them, and that is the claims that Jesus made. Let's turn first in our Bible to John uh, 8.58. John 8.58. This takes place in the midst of an encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. John 8.58. And in this encounter, let's back up a f- just a few verses in order to get the context. The Jews challenge him after he's mentioned, they've mentioned uh, Abraham. And in verse 53, they say, Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. So right there he's claiming that he has a unique relationship to the father. 
Verse 55, he says, Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. See, he's just, he must not have gone to the Dale Carnegie School of How to Win Friends and Influence People. He consistently calls them liars all the way through the passage. He would never pass muster in a homiletics or, or any kind of pastoral ministry course today. He said in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now they're sitting there scratching their heads and say, How did Abraham see your day? And he says, You're not 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? You're not old enough. Abraham died almost 2,000 years ago. And Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And it is this last part of the verse that is so important. Jesus is using a technical piece of grammar in order to emphasize his eternality. He uses a one form of, the, uh, of an existential verb, genomai, in its past tense, before Abraham came into existence, literally, a past tense form of uh, genomai. He says, I am, present tense. Now, that doesn't make grammatical sense, but it is theologically true, because he is saying that before Abraham came into existence, I always was in existence, continuously existed. And he uses the two Greek words, Ego eimi, and this is the translation of the name, the proper name of God, the covenant name of God that was indicated in Exodus 3.14 to the Jews that when Moses said, whom should I say has sent me? And God said, uh, I, I am that I am. And so the proper name of God is the name Yahweh in the Old Testament, which comes from the Hebrew uh, verb for existence, uh, Hayah, which means to be. So I am that I am. And any time you see in the Gospel of John, Jesus make this statement, I am, there is this subtext that you should read that he is making a claim to deity. Another time, John 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now, if you connect that to Deuteronomy 6, 4, that the Lord our God is one, then Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He is claiming a unity within the Godhead. And so Jesus did not shrink as a monotheist who believed there was one God, did not shrink from making these claims of deity. And so this establishes a foundation that Jesus claimed to be fully God. Furthermore, we see in the, uh, in the New Testament that there are many different passages where they talk about God in the Old Testament and then they talk about Jesus, or they're applied to Jesus in the New Testament. If you would, just uh, if you're fast enough, you can turn in your Bible, in your Old Testament, to Psalm 68. Psalm 68. Psalm 68, 18. Is a, the, the 68th Psalm is a triumphal Psalm at the time that the Ark of the Covenant was taken to the Temple Mount. And in Psalm 68, verse 18, David writes... You have ascended on high. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Yahweh in context. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. And you have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be Yahweh, he goes on to say in verse 19. Now, if you hold your place there and just turn over to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter 4, we'll see how the Apostle Paul quotes that verse. Ephesians chapter 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. Ephesians 4. First, let's just start off to get the context in verse 7. Paul writes, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he says, talking about the Old Testament, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And then he comments on that verse. See, he quotes from the Old Testament, and then he explains what the text means. This is how preaching was done in those days where they expounded on the text. Now, this he ascended, what does it mean? That he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, without now getting into the details of the passage, 
Paul is clearly applying Psalm 68.18 to the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the original context of Psalm 68.18, it was applied to God. So Paul, the monotheist, who hated being identified as a god and hated polytheism, which we see in Acts, identifies Jesus with God in the way he applies Old Testament passages to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can see this in some other places. Those of you who have been hanging around on Thursday night to go through the Hebrew series, we see the same thing happen in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. There is a quote from Psalm 102, 24 to 27. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. In the Old Testament context in Psalm 102, that applied to God. But in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews applies that to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are other passages that you can look at that we won't have time to go through. For example, Philippians 2.10, when compared with Isaiah 45.23. Also passages such as Revelation 1.17, uh, Revelation 2.8, and Revelation 22.13, when compared to Isaiah 44.6 and 48.12, that that in the Old Testament said that God was the first and the last, and in Revelation that is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other places, the Lord Jesus Christ is assigned the attributes that would belong only to God. These are usually related to the infinite attributes of God's omnipotence, His omniscience, and His omnipresence. For example, in Matthew 8:23 to 27, we won't take the time to look at, at that, but he is ascribed omnipotence. He can do all things. In John 2, 7 through 9, where Jesus turns the water into wine, he is clearly performing an act that only God can do. In John chapter 9, when he spits on the ground and makes a, a little clay ball and he rubs it on the eyes of the blind man and he restores sight to the blind, he is doing what only God can do. Again and again and again in the New Testament, Jesus is ascribed the attributes of deity. So the point that I am making is simply that in, once we get into the New Testament, Jesus Christ is, uh, is given and assigned and described as performing the actions that only God can do. He is said to be the Creator in John 1.3. Nothing has come into existence uh, but by Him. He forgives sin. In Matthew 2, 5 through 7, he forgives the sin of the paralytic in order to demonstrate that he is God and has the ability to, uh, he heals him also in order to demonstrate that he is God and has the ability to forgive sin. So in all of these different elements, we see that divine attributes are assigned to the Lord Jesus Christ. So at this point, when we go through the New Testament, what we see is that that there is still a multiplicity of persons in, in relationship to God, and we can identify two of them at this point in terms of the Father and the Son. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. But we have a third person in the Trinity, and that is the Holy Spirit. And so we have to understand who the Holy Spirit is. Now, liberal theology, starting in the late 19th century, started saying that, that the Holy Spirit wasn't a third person. The Holy Spirit was just an emanation or an expression of God. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. Uh, hold, you, you can turn one place we have here in, in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 3, which is the episode with Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, these are the only two people in the Bible who ever get slain by the Spirit. If you're not charismatic, you just didn't catch that. Uh, Acts 5.3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, you can't lie to an impersonal force. You can only lie to a person. So it is clear that the Holy Spirit is viewed in this passage as a person. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? He goes on, then in verse 5 he said, Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. Why? God took him out at this point because he had blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, or he had had, uh, lied to the Holy Spirit, and this is a 
sin. And it indicates that the Holy Spirit was God because of the way he is, uh, the way he is lying to him. So the Holy Spirit is, this is treated as a grievous sin because in verse 4 we're told he lied. He did not lie to, it was not because he lied to men, but he lied to God. Furthermore, in other passages we see that the Holy Spirit has the divine attribute of omniscience. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. But God has revealed them to us, that is the Word of God, the Scriptures. God has revealed them to us through or by means of His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, and the all things in context is the revealed Word of God, yes, the deep things of God. So the Holy Spirit knows everything that God knows. So the Holy Spirit is seen to have the attribute of omniscience. Uh, Again, in Psalm 139, verse 7, David writes, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? In other words, there's a parallelism here between the first stanza and the second. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Spirit and presence are parallel, and so he is attributing omnipresence to the Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit is assigned the various attributes of God. Therefore, he is viewed as being full deity. He is a person and full deity. Again, we see this in a passage where the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking. And in John 14, 6, 16, rather, John 14, 16, he is talking to the disciples and he's telling him, them that he's about to leave but that when he leaves, there will be a replacement come, another comforter. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, a paraclete, a comforter. And the word there translated another in the Greek is the Greek word alos, A-L-L-O-S, not heteros. Heteros is different of the, uh, uh, is the same of a different kind, but uh, uh Alas is another of the same kind, so that the Holy Spirit that comes is going to be another comforter of the same kind, another paraclete of the same kind as me. What kind is Jesus? Well, he's not human, he's divine. So that the paraclete who comes is also going to be divine. Other passages talk about the Holy Spirit. For example, Romans 8.27 Talk about the mind of the Spirit. He has intellect, therefore he is a person. Uh, we can, in the, in the spiritual life, grieve and quench the Spirit. Grieving the Spirit is an anthropopathism. Nevertheless, it indicates that he is a person. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Uh, we also know from passages such as 1 Corinthians 12:11 that the Holy Spirit distributes spiritual gifts. How? As he wills. So this indicates that he has knowledge, he has will, he has personality, he has all of the attributes of person and all the attributes of deity. So we have three persons now described in the Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now how do we understand and articulate their relationship? Now this, let's skip ahead a few slides, this is a real challenge. And in the early church, they went through a couple of false starts trying to figure this out. And the first major attempt was called modalism. And so I have a diagram here to explain this. In modalism, you had one God who is one in essence and one in person. You have a solitary singular monotheism. But this solitary God expresses himself to people in different modes. This is why it was called modalism. And these modes would be uh, comparable to wearing a mask. And in the Old Testament, he wore the mask or had the image or expressed himself as a father. But then when you come into the New Testament, he's expressing himself as the son. And then when you come into the New Testament uh, and into the church age, he expresses himself as the Holy Spirit. So he just has different ways of revealing himself to man, but it's just one God, one person, one essence. Well, that was rejected uh, very quickly after it was set forth in the early church because it didn't do justice to passages where Jesus is praying to the Father. Is he having a conversation with himself or is he talking to another individual? 
Well, it makes it pretty foolish if Jesus is carrying on a lengthy prayer to himself. So it was clear that the Bible distinguished between the person of Jesus and the person of the Father. Another way in which they tried to handle the problem was the idea of adoptionism. Adoptionism. And in this view, what they did, they went to the other extreme and they said that the Son is subordinate to the Father in essence and in person. In essence and in person. And so you have God the Father who exists from eternity past. And then he attributed humanity or or attributed deity or he sent deity to the Son at the time of the uh, baptism. So he becomes God at the time of the baptism. This was picked up later on by a guy named Arius who lived towards at the uh, beginning of the 5th century. And Arius, instead of assigning this, this adoption of Christ at the time of his baptism, places it before time began. And with Arius, he taught that there was a time when Christ was not, a time when the Son did not exist. So you had the Father who's eternal, but the Son is created or generated at some time in eternity past. That was what was rejected at the Council of Nicaea. Arianism still exists today, but it goes by the name of Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, This was why you had the Council of Nicaea called, and they affirmed the eternality of Jesus, that he was of the same essence as the Father. Now, here you have the two words that were uh, argued over at the Council of Nicaea. The first word is homoousios. Homo usios, and, it, and homo means the same, and usios means being. And the first word meant that the son was of the same being or essence as the father. The second word is the word homoousios, and it doesn't mean the same being, it means of similar being or essence. And the only difference between the two words is that little letter I. And in the Greek, they used to pronounce that iota. And you had a very famous uh, writer who wrote the, uh, Edward Gibbon, who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And he was not very sympathetic to Christianity at all. And he, when he described the Council of Nicaea, he said, see, they, they, they were arguing all this time over these two words, and there was only an iota's worth of difference. See, that's where that phrase comes from historically. You didn't know that. See, that's a theological term. That, that all has to do with the theological debate. But that one letter made a tremendous difference because in the first word, you have, a, have Jesus who is of the same identical essence as the Father. He is full, undiminished deity. But in the second, he is a lower level deity. He is not of the full order of deity as as the Father. So therefore, he would be a creature. Now you have a problem. Because if Jesus is a creature, then he has limited knowledge. He is not omniscient. And he would have to learn about God himself. He wouldn't know God fully and totally. And when you get into the New Testament, one of the things that you have to address is Jesus' conversation with Philip at the beginning of John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, Jesus has just told the disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And then he can, Thomas challenges him, and then we have a verse that is well known to us in this study. Jesus responded by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but my me. Thomas said, well, where are you going? How do we know how to get there? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the only way to the Father. Now, this is crucial. This is fundamental and foundational to biblical Christianity, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. There's a current uh, was a Newsweek that's out right now that has on the cover uh, Spirituality in America. And it cites a study, and there have been several of these studies I've seen recently, 
that indicate that 68% of alleged evangelicals or so-called evangelicals do not believe that Jesus is the only way to God. If Jesus isn't the only way to God, believe me, you're not an evangelical anymore. In fact, some, someone commented not long ago that only 5% of evangelicals are really evangelical. Most evangelicals don't understand enough doctrine to know whether they're evangelical or not. In fact, I read something this last week that included Robert Schuller and Joel Osteen as evangelicals. Now, that's really diluting the meaning of the word evangelical. So it almost means nothing today. I, I have no idea where they're getting their definitions. But inherent to the biblical message, as we've seen, is there's only one way to God. There's an exclusivism to Christianity which just rubs modern man in a, in a wrong way. Well, having said that, that he's the only way to the Father, Jesus goes on to say in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Now, that is a profound statement. Jesus is saying, just by knowing me the last three years, you know the Father. To know me is to know the Father. We are one. And at the Council of Nicaea, Arius was the bad guy. He believed that Jesus was not eternal God. But the good guy was a bishop from North Africa by the name of Athanasius. And Athanasius understood the real significant theological issues here. And one of them was that if Jesus wasn't fully God, then we don't know God. And it comes right out of John 14, that if Jesus isn't God, then we don't know him. We're still guessing. All we know is a creature who himself may know a little bit more about God than we do, but he doesn't know God. And... In John 14:8, Jesus responds to Philip. After all those years, Philip really didn't understand what was going on. He said, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus responded by saying, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? And the foundation here is that to know, God, to know Jesus is to know God because they are, they are one. Now, this establishes for us the principle in the New Testament is the same thing we saw in the Old Testament, that there is a, there is a singular God, but, he, but there's a multiplicity of beings. So in the early church, they put this together, and they came up with a definition, basically, that, that God exists. He is one in essence, but three in personality. Now, the next question that has to be addressed is the question of how do they relate to one another? How does the Son relate to the Father, and how does the Holy Spirit relate to the Father and the Son? And this is where we get into an understanding of the implications of the Trinity for our life. The first and most important implication is that of salvation. Salvation. If Jesus Christ isn't God, we don't have a salvation. Because if Jesus Christ is a creature... He is a fallen creature because all human beings are fallen, and therefore he couldn't pay for anyone's sins on the cross other than his own. So if Jesus is reduced to nothing more than another creature, then he can't pay for the sins of the world. Only as God, where his work would have an infinite value, could he pay for the sins of the entire world. Therefore, Jesus Christ, in order to pay the penalty for sins, had to partake of both deity and humanity. Athanasius understood that at the Council of Nicaea. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the first and most important application of the Trinity is that without the Trinity, you can't have a salvation. Without the Trinity, therefore, you cannot have Christianity because Christ would be nothing more than a man. But let's probe this a little more. Without a Trinity, you don't have a basis for understanding personality in the universe. Now, how do you get that? Well, see, according to the Trinity, you have three persons who have an eternal relationship. The Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Holy Spirit. The Son loves the Holy Spirit and the Father. They are eternally love. A basic thing that, has, that troubles almost every religion is the concept of love. Where does love come from? Love is inherent. It's a basic concept to every relationship. But if a God is not love, then where do you get love 
in the creation. So we, you know, religions say that God has to be love. But if that God is a singular existence, if it's a monotheistic or, or a, a singular or unitarian monotheism, then who does that God love in eternity past? If there's not an object for his love, then he must create an object for his love in order to be who he is. But that would make God dependent upon his creature to be God. That violates the very definition of God. God would have to be independent. So a solitary monotheism always falls apart. That's why uh, even though Islam claims that Allah is love, love is never attributed to Allah anywhere in the Quran. The word is used only, I think, six or seven times, and it always talks about man's love for Allah or man's love for man, but it never talks about Allah's love for man. And without a God who, who has a, an eternal uh, multiplicity of persons, you don't have eternal objects for love, and so everything starts to fall apart. So the second most important element and the, and the application of the Trinity is that it is a foundation for understanding personality in the human race and understanding relationship. Because what the Trinity tells us is that throughout all of eternity, there has been a society, a fellowship of three persons that communicate with each other, that know each other, that uh, are, are, that, that totally relate to one another, and you have this eternal fellowship in the Trinity. So that becomes a foundation for understanding social relationships. Because in the Trinity, you have two things going on at the same time. On the one hand, you have a total equality. The Father is equal to the Son. They have the same essence. Jesus is equal to the Father. The Son is equal to the Father. The Holy Spirit is equal to the Father and the Son in terms of their being, in terms of their person. So you have three distinct persons who are completely equal to one another. Nevertheless, within the structure of the Trinity, you have a hierarchy. There is an authority structure within the Trinity. It's not based on one being better than the other. It is, it is inherent to their very relationship. The Father is in authority over the Son, and the Son and the Father sent the Holy Spirit. So there is a subordinate, a relationship of subordination in the Trinity. And so the question that arises is, how does that impact creation? Well, it impacts every area of creation and all our understanding of any social environment. Let's just take two for an example. One is marriage. And this is something you see in the Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that the head of, God, the head of Christ is God. God is the head of the, of the body of Christ and, and uses that analogy that the husband is the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the body. And God is the head over Christ. So there's an authority relationship. But that authority relationship isn't based on any idea of superiority. So that the father is not in authority over the son because he's superior to the son. Therefore, the husband is not the authority in the home because he is smarter or inherently superior or stronger or anything else over the wife. It's the way God has designed the structure. So you can have within marriage, if you have a Christian marriage, you can have an understanding that the husband and the wife are equal in essence. They're equal in their priesthood before God. They have uh, equal spiritual lives, but there is an authority structure that is not based on superiority. In fact, one of the difficult things that you run into sometimes is you find a wife that is smarter and more capable in many areas than her husband. Nevertheless, she has to learn to subordinate herself to his authority. Same thing can happen in a local church. I've been in churches where you had women in the local church who could outthink the pastor left and right. They could run circles around him in their understanding of the Scripture. It can happen with a congregation where you have an older, mature congregation, a brand new, fresh out of seminary uh, pastor. And you have women in the congregation, no more. Some of them may even be more capable of communication than the pastor because he's young. Nevertheless, the Scripture prohibits women from being pastors, not because they're not capable, not because they're less equal, but because God has designed certain role structures. So you have to keep a balanced relationship. Uh, We'll see that. Let me put up another slide. 
And this slide illustrates the Trinity, that the Father is equal to the Holy Spirit, and, is, and they're equal to the Son, but there is a subordinate relationship between the two that allows you to give equal emphasis to the individuals while at the same time honoring the whole, that there, are, there is one God. Now, another way that this has played itself out historically is in the understanding of a different kind of social structure, and that's government or politics. Now, think about that. On the one hand, you have many different people. If you stress the individuality of every individual person, you end up with anarchy. On the other hand, if you go the other way and emphasize the unity of the country, the nation, the people, group, whatever it is, you usually end up with some kind of anarchy, I mean, excuse me, some kind of tyranny where you emphasize the one over all the particulars. Now, this is another area that, that where the Trinity really uh, has an application that most people don't go to because most people never study philosophy. Throughout the history of philosophy, there's been a struggle with understanding the relationship between what philosophers call the one and the many. Uh, what we would call the universals and the particulars, or the uh, 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 universals and uh, individual items, and you see this in, gov- in government. You see it in um, you see it in marriage. If everybody, if you just emphasize the one, you emphasize the husband. You have a tyranny there, or in some cases, in a matriarchy, you emphasize the one in terms of the uh, the wife. But in the scripture, you have. Uh, in, within a Trinitarian framework, you can emphasize the distinctiveness of the individual without at the same time sacrificing the importance of the whole. This plays itself out, has played itself out in the understanding that influenced the founding of this country so that you could make every individual citizen of value. Every person had, every well, not initially every person, but every family had a vote. The individual was important. The individual had freedom, a freedom that wasn't sacrificed at the expense of the whole. Nevertheless, you had a recognition that there was a, uni, a unified nation that was unified in a representative government, and so you could give due recognition to the unity of the government, but not at the expense of the individual citizens, and you could respect the individual citizenry without sacrificing the importance of the whole. And that came, ultimately came out of an understanding of the Trinity. And most people never go there. That's a more sophisticated application of the Trinity. But it affects every kind of society that we have because we can give due respect to each individual without sacrificing the whole at the same time. It applies to the church. The church is one. We are united. We are one in Christ. And so we can give due respect and the right position to the whole of the church and at the same time respect the individuals. If we go too far to one side and we put all the emphasis on the individuals, then the church starts to fragment. If we go too far to the other extreme, put all the emphasis on the church, you lose the importance of each individual believer. And when you look at the body of Christ and how it's explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, every believer is individually important because of the spiritual gifts that they have, but those spiritual gifts come together for the benefit of the whole body of Christ. So those are three ways in which this understanding of the Trinity as an eternal relationship of three persons, yet one in essence, should affect and impact how we think about almost any kind of social structure in the created realm. But most important, what you get out of the Trinity is that without a second person of the Trinity, who is the Savior of all mankind and is able to save all mankind because of who he is, you don't have Christianity and you don't have salvation. So the Trinity isn't just some kind of nice philosophical, theological uh, gimmick that somebody dreamed up in the early church because it made Christianity look a little different. It's inherent to understanding the very fabric of the universe that God had created. It is foundational to understanding everything from salvation to the spiritual life to how we as human beings come together in any kind of society with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to come to a greater understanding of who you are and how uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit relate to one another. Father, we pray that as we go back and study these verses, study these concepts, that you'll give, give us greater clarity, greater understanding of who you are, that it cha- may change the way we think about everything around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.